Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Sorcerer, starring Roy Scheider, Bruno Kremer, Francisco Rabal, Amadou, written by Wallen Green, based on the book The Wages of Fear by Georges Arnaud, and directed by William Friedkin. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to wrap up another film review cast. This one we have built all around director William Friedkin, kind of sticking with him in the 70s here. This has been a fun ride to kind of revisit a lot of these films and show you some stuff for the first time. Sorcerer, this was your first go at it. So we're going to get the the raw reaction from you, which is going to be fun. <laughs> it is fun to do that because I don't have time to sit and process it. It's just raw, mm-hmm. kind of like the film. Yeah, sitting with you. And uh, one of these days we're going to have to flip the script and I'm going to have to do that to you, but def- it's def- not this week. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's let's go ahead and pour us off here some more and finish off the Old Forester Statesman. This has been a good one. Yeah, this has been a bottle that served us very well, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have some Basil Hayden's in the reserve here for, we'll top off this bottle halfway through and we'll probably need just a little bit more. But cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Excellent. It's, it's, it's really good. Like What I like is that it's smooth, but it has a bit of a harshness to it as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, the 95 proof is a little high, mm-hmm. but the beginning of that comes in, like you said, real gentle. And for the notes that are in there, I actually do taste a little little vanilla mm-hmm. and caramel. Mm-hmm. And as crazy as this may sound, maybe a bit of pepper on the back end. There you go. I like it. <clears throat> it's really good. That's that's a good um, variation on the old Forester there. But this, let's, what are you going to say? Like your grandpa's whisk, your grandpa's bourbon. This Literally, seems yeah, to yeah. Be yeah. Like this is the quintessential get to know bourbon. Exactly. There you go. Let's get right to it and let's get to the flight this week. Really interesting score by Tangerine Dream in this film. We'll definitely talk about them, but very atmospheric and synth-heavy. So talking about William Friedkin, we started with The French Connection. Last week we had The Exorcist. This week we're talking about Sorcerer from 1977. And it's a pretty good three-film stretch for the director. Um, There's a big gap between 73 and 77. It was primarily Friedkin trying to decide, what am I? how do I follow up The Exorcist? And he was going to do this film called The Devil's Triangle, but then uh, Spielberg went into production on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I guess it was kind of similar. It was like an alien tale of sorts. Hmm. I'm thinking the Bermuda Triangle. Sounds like it. Yeah, so he ended up at this film, and we're going to talk about the the woes associated with everything about it, but it's a pretty good run from him, so... Why don't you go ahead and pitch what the flight question is this week then? So the flight question this week then is to take any director of film and find the best, and that's hard because we can go on and on with that, but the best three sequential run that you can give to a singular director. Um, I struggled with this, and 
as much as I searched and didn't find some of the likely candidates that I thought I would have, it also did uncover some other ones that I didn't expect. Sure. So this can be in a three-year window or this can be in a 10-year window. It's just A, B, and C. And the length of entries in between as director, this doesn't include producer, actor, or writer, although sometimes producer, director, writer are all sort of intertwined. Um, There's some interesting runs and there's some interesting names that didn't make it. Yeah, like I tried to like start with the director and like just look at their filmography. So I, I started with Spielberg. I was like, okay, we got like Jaws, Close Encounters, 1941, eh, a bit of a step. And then I was like, well, let me start again with Raiders, E.T. And then it's like Temple of Doom. Yeah, maybe not again. Like Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Lost World Dress. Like I kept like stumbling on that third one, which is really hard to do. Well, the names, that, the name you just mentioned is important. Here's some other names we can include in that. Mm-hmm. Ron Howard yep. doesn't make it. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Pollack mm-hmm. doesn't make it. Yeah. Leo McCary mm-hmm. doesn't make Ridley it. Scott. Ridley Scott doesn't make mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, we can just keep going. On. Rob Reiner doesn't make it. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. These are big time directors and there seems to be mm-hmm. a difficulty hitting that third one. It's like hitting the cycle in baseball. Right. Yeah. Can't get the triple. It's hard. Right. That's the hard one. Uh, the home run, the double and the single, those are easy. The mm-hmm. triple is the tough one. Mm-hmm. You're going to stretch the double or you're going to, you know, it's got to be in the gap. And, yeah. and so anyway, all of that. It's just funny, the names, John Ford, John Ford didn't make it. With all of the Westerns, mm-hmm. there is a couple times where he gets kind of close, and then it's like war documentary. Yep. I looked at Frank Capra, too, and... Doesn't make it. Mm-mm. It's weird, huh? Yep. So this is, I think, pretty rarefied air to be in. Mm-hmm. And again, it's based a little bit on consumer preference, which would be sure. the viewer, me or you. Yeah. But nonetheless, some of these are... Not hard to make the case that they don't belong. So three in a row is tough. Yeah. Can I go first? Of course. Excellent. So honorable mentions, I mentioned the Coen brothers to you, and I picked like Fargo, Lebowski, Oh Brother, and that's kind of stretching it a bit. I thought about Nolan too with Memento, Insomnia, and then Batman Begins. But Insomnia. Yep. And then uh, Coppola, and you could make the case for Coppola for a four-film stretch of The Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now. But I think the one I have best to that one, and it's Alfred Hitchcock, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Psycho. Like, pretty, those are pretty great. Those are the top tier of my Hitchcock films, like all five stars. That's a pretty great cycle for, for him in a see that's 50 56 like 58 and 60 yeah real close together and he's firing on all cylinders at that time Mm -hmm. and vertigo's kind of a bomb when it comes out psycho's like a hit but like really takes everything by storm and so there's there's some kind of misses in there like how the audience perceives them but those films are legends today yeah that's a nice run Mm mm-hmm you could probably go a little bit earlier back to the Rebecca area because that's Rebecca and Suspicion. <clears throat> and even then you kind of stumble about because then you have like a foreign correspondent right. in there and it kind of messes it up. So, yeah, it's tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, another name that made it on yours, but, uh, you know, oh, with this run. Yeah. So let me give you also Coppola was also a consideration for me. Uh, so let me give you another honorable mention that wasn't just mentioned. It's De Palma. This is 81 to 84. And it's Blowout, Scarface, and Body Double. The reason that doesn't end up being my choice today is Body Double, I wouldn't say is weak, but it's a little bit, a little bit squishy. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I've got something better. Okay. Now, this is one that 
I'm going to argue, and we made this discussion a little bit earlier today. Mm-hmm. I think there's an argument to made this might be the best director from A to Z in all of the film history that's ever been. That's quite a statement. Yeah. And I, I feel comfortable standing by that. Mm-hmm. There might have been three places I could have chosen eras for the same director with three great films in a row. But I'm going to choose an era that goes from 1957 to 1960. And those films are going to include Witness for the Prosecution, Some Like It Hot, and The Apartment. And that's Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. I've spoken many times about how big a fan of his I am on these podcasts. It's only been solidified sitting down and looking at the man's work from A to Z. And yeah. such range, comedy, noir, thriller. Yeah, those are three very different films. I mean, and if you think about Some Like It Hot in the Apartment, we're probably talking about two of the 10 greatest comedies of all time. Mm-hmm. And Witness for the Prosecution is a courtroom drama with Charles Lawton, mm-hmm. uh, Marlene Dietrich, and Tyrone Power. Yeah. So if you can work with Marlene Dietrich, Marlene Dietrich, um, Jack Lemmon, and Marilyn Monroe in three different entries in the same three-year period, and that's the other thing, too. There's not a lot of time for him to find new material. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can go back to... Double Indemnity, Ace in the Hole, mm-hmm. and The Lost Weekend, and that's a reasonable three-run, three-picture run, too. It just the guy's got a ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's my choice is Billy Wilder. In that particular, based on my preference, year period, 57 to 60, again, witness for the prosecution, some like it hot in the apartment. That's pretty good. Yeah. And that's really good. We've talked about him as being a potential cask <clears throat> in the future, and I think we probably need to revisit that because sooner or later we're going to just – Need to have to do another director. Another director. There's nothing new coming. It's for kind a of fun while. doing the director cast. I don't know if you've noticed, kind of like with Friedkin, but by the time we get to this film, you're kind of picking up on a lot of like his style and that documentary kind of rawness. Like, man, if he wants to show the nastiness of the settings that they're taking place, and we saw that in New York, we saw that in Georgetown, and definitely in this film too. So it's nice to kind of see just different variations on a filmmaker's body of work. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. I love your list. Yours too. Excellent. So let's get right to it. Happy hour time and our review breakdown of Sorcerer. Stuff has been sitting the better part of a year. It's worthless. What do you mean? It sits for a long time without being turned. That liquid nitro seeps out of the sticks and into the bath. If you give those cases any kind of a bump, it'll blow. It's risky moving one of those cases 10 feet. That fire is over 200 miles away. If it were up there, could you use it? I suppose we could boom load it a little bit at a time, yes. How the hell are you going to get it's it It's not your problem. So Sorcerer opens up with four kind of little vignettes of our main characters of the film. And it's interesting because it shows them in different pockets of the world. And they're all kind of really terrible people doing awful things or involved in awful things. And it's just, you know, through fate's hand that they end up in the same setting to go on this very risky mission. But we start in Veracruz with our assassin guy. And um, this is, yeah, yeah, Nilo. And we just kind of see him on one of his hits. And and then he kind of just walks out, just kind of scot-free. And he's, he's we're going to kind of see that again in play down in, in Latin America. Shoot over to Jerusalem and this Palestinian terrorist. Yeah, yeah, terrorist attack on the Damascus Gate. Uh, and... Um, and kind of this this team of, of, of terrorists that 
are arrested and then one escapes and he kind of like sidles into the crowd. What ends up happening with all these guys, they all have to just end up, they have to vanish like ghosts. They, and then they have to like just disappear off the face of the earth, which is, which is hard to, to do. First of all, cut to Paris. We get the next one with this man that's um, involved in like the stock market and embezzlement I embezzlement. Think. And they don't have the money to, to pay the, the, their debts and his partner kills himself. And so he's on the run from like the creditors and like who he owes money to cut to Jersey. And we get Roy Scheider as they hold up this, um, this church collection room. In it's, church. Yeah, it's the collection room. They're like, it's a, and it looks like it's mob run. Oh yeah, and they're pocketing all the all the money from just all the different parishes around the area. Gets in an accident, all his um, co robbers are all killed, and he's on the lam now. So within the span of about 16, 17 minutes, we establish all four of these characters, who they are, what they do, and why they're on the run now. What did you think of this this opening to kind of just set everything up? Those four vignettes are really important because what it did, it is created an interest in the character for me before we got to what the main juxtaposition mm-hmm. of the crisis in the sorcerer travel bit. Yeah. So let's talk about the Roy Scheider character for just a minute. Okay. What's troubling for him, and this is going to reappear throughout the film. Jackie is his name. Yeah, Jackie. Mm-hmm. Is he wrecks the getaway car. Yep. So after they hold up these priests and steal this money mm-hmm. and shoot one of them who happens to be the brother of the mafia guy that runs that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They're, they're hauling ass getting away and Roy Scheider wrecks the car. Jackie wrecks it, flips it, kills one of his co-conspirators and basically limps, sneaks away from the authorities as they arrive to uncover the scattered remains of those that are sort of surviving or not from the car wreck. Mm -hmm. Well, he's got to get the hell out of town and he finds what he thinks is a friend who will give him passport. Mm -hmm. Now what's important in that is not, I mean, it's important that he leaves, what's important is he wrecks the car. Yeah. And his redemption in this film is going to have to be through driving a car. Mm -hmm. So then let me give you one other one that I think is really smart. The PLO leader, okay, after they blow up the gate of Damascus, Mm -hmm. they go up into this apartment complex and they're hiding from the authorities. And we kind of want them to get away, just mostly because that's all that we really know. So I guess we're sort of pulling for them. Mm -hmm. And his buddy gets caught by the police. And you think, oh man, that's going to suck for that guy. What are they going to do to him? Mm -hmm. Because he's caught by uh, agents of Mossad or uh, some... Jewish authorities or whoever, and, and you know they're going to just rain hell on that man. Yeah. So in the crowd, the other guy, the co-conspirator that we're going to spend a lot of time with, escapes, and you sort of feel like, well, at least one of them's going to get away. But man, what he gets away to might be worse. Definitely. And that's the case with all of these guys. <clears throat> Even the French guy who is a white-collar criminal involved in embezzlement, mm-hmm. lovely wife at home, uh, luxurious living. Like They all end up in the middle of and squalor yeah. would probably be three socioeconomic statuses above where these guys are living. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking mud. It's flies. Did you did you hear oh, the flies? Yeah, like it was just part of the soundtrack. Like from like the second they got there. I mean, if you were lucky enough to have a lean to, you probably have suitable accommodations in this setting, mm-hmm. in Veracruz. It's just devoid of 
any sort Mm -hmm. of luxury or benefit or circumstance that would allow successful civilization to continue. I mean, it is so low that Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. dogs wouldn't even bite this. We are talking about squalor with a capital S. Mm -hmm. And you feel bad for these guys because what they escaped to, I don't think they knew how bad it was going to be. They thought they were going to get away to like a Sewatineo kind of place maybe, right? Yeah, We can remake the boat. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, far from it. Yeah. They're in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And you know what? And when they're there, it's almost like they've accepted it because they have nowhere else to go. And I love when once they're there, any person that walks down the street or is standing in like the corner, they're like very suspicious of like everyone that like is entering like a threshold that involves them. Like they're very much having to look over their shoulders for what they've done, whether they're being hunted by mobsters or creditors or hitmen. They're very on edge the entire time, which is point to the audience because the audience is kind of on edge the whole time as well. And I think with maybe the exception of Victor, that's the Frenchman. Mm -hmm. Each of the other three main guys we're going to see come with a specific skill set that serves them quite well during the quest that they take. Mm -hmm. Bombing the hitman and his sort of assassin-like technique, which is going to come in big time in a scene that feels like it's right out of the treasure of Sierra Madre. And we'll talk about that here in a second. And... um, you know, Scheider mm-hmm. and the Fred C. Dobbs role that he kind of takes on in so far as driven, driven, driven. And I'm not trying to be punny because it's about trucks, but like driven towards this cause mm-hmm. and allowing himself to be so motivated by money, which is what motivated him earlier in the bank robbery. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. Of all the people to hold up, first of all, a church and then a church run by a mob. Yep. And you really are greedy to go that route. Oh, yeah. That's the worst hold. Like, that's like robbing the bank right next to the police station and then going to the bar across the street from both of them and bragging about it. Well, we even said, too, like the wedding itself was odd because the bride has like a big <laughs> shiner black eye. And we're just like, oh, man. It sets an interesting tone for the film mm-hmm. because it's it's actually a really violent movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was on the edge of my seat and troubled at some points and, and stressed. But the use of of Friedkin mm-hmm. and blood in this film. Yeah. There's a lot of like very vibrant reds. And most of the time in this movie, it's either something burning or something bleeding. Mm-hmm. And man, <laughs> that shot, which is this woman getting married to this guy. And you can tell he has just beat the hell out of her on, on her w- wedding day. Wedding morning. Yeah. With this shiner. Mm-hmm. The movie is just very unapologetic about this is mostly terrible people involved in terrible situations, and it's terrible. And I don't know if they're redeemable at all. You know what I mean? But you know what we've created with the people that are in Veracruz, our little crew, Mm -hmm. anti-heroes. Big time. Yep. Let's talk about Roy Scheider for a bit. Uh, This wasn't Friedkin's first choice for this film. He actually wanted Steve McQueen, which would have been fairly interesting, but he had a crazy kind of list of demands and Friedkin. Friedkin's a no bullshit kind of guy. He's like, I'm not doing, rearranging the whole movie just to accommodate one person. Him and Scheider had had kind of fallen out after the French connection because Roy really wanted the part of Father Karras in The Exorcist and William Peter Blatty said, there's no way he's playing that character. What do you think about that? Could he have pulled it off? Maybe. I think so. Yeah. But then, it, then you're with the powers that be, and they already had a hard time casting that film. But then in between Exorcist and Sorcerer, we have Jaws. So now Schreider's a bit of a name of sorts. Mm-hmm. 
but I think he represents an every man pretty well in this. And you said Fred C. Dobbs. We got to tackle that movie because I think one of the finest American Hollywood studio films ever made was The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. No question about it. And I think he embodies that character really well and what he's in it for himself and just kind of his gains and goals. And he had some great scenes coming up here in a little bit. But this was kind of a difficult film for for the two of them. They um, Friedkin says at times that Scheider was really hard to work with and there was times when they couldn't even communicate to each other. So how are you directing a movie? You can't even talk to your lead actor and tell, tell, tell him what to do. And by the end of this whole thing, they had kind of split their separate ways. And I don't think they really talked to each other much for the rest of their lives. Crazy, but that that's kind of like what a production of this sort kind of does. So now once we're in Latin America, the whole production aspect of this thing is very fascinating to me. So Friedkin coming out of that new Hollywood movement with like Coppola, De Palma, Scorsese, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Friedkin always kind of saw uh, Francis Ford Coppola as like a, like a friendly competitor. Like, oh, he's making that movie. Like, I got to try and like one up him or I got to try and equal that. So around the time that he's going into production on this, Francis is going to the Philippines to start work on Apocalypse Now. So he's like, I got to go into the thick of it too and do my film. On location. And what's interesting about both those films is the directors went on location for them, and it's kind of like they never really returned the same men. Mm, well said. It's like the production took years off their lives or the passion of filmmaking out of them because you look at whatever what these directors did after both of those films, and it's the quality is not the same. It doesn't look like the ambition and the passion is the same, and it's almost like, my God, did they like... Part of them died making these movies. It's crazy to see, but when you watch this thing, you're like, I could totally see it. I think I want to double back on that because I think you can make a case that Brando and Scheider, although we'll have some other appearances in film, and I know people are going to argue like that Brando was really good and that Matthew Broderick film was like called The Freshman or whatever. <laughs> no, I think he even got nominated in that movie. Okay, okay. But mostly the toll of the location for Apocalypse Now and Sorcerer took such a heavy, heavy burden or was such a heavy burden on both of them that I think it kind of sucked them dry as well too. To go mm -hmm. to the Philippines and shoot Apocalypse Now in rain and mosquitoes and malaria and to hydrochloroquine, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not surprised that Scheider and Friedkin were at each other. Yeah. <clears throat> the movie looks miserable. Yep. So consider you're working 15, 16 hour days. It's like that all the time. You can't even be yourself. You're trying to be this other character who is up against it with heavy, heavy consequences. And this can go for both those two films. It's rainy. It's cold. It's be a miserable shoot. Yeah. And to both of the credits of those filmed, it looks really good and it feels mm -hmm. hard to watch. Like that was the other thing too, watching this movie. I was like, God, the conditions are just so bad. Yeah. It'd be tough to act in that. Yep. I'm not surprised that all of them came out of those two films collectively, Apocalypse Now. Kind of beat to hell. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. At some point you just, you've taken so many blows, your chin is just glass. Exactly. And you have to go home and make the Cotton Club or whatever and <laughs> do a period piece full of music because there's just not a whole lot of the creativity. Outsiders. Right. Yep. Creativity left in the tank. That's, that's, that's crazy. 
it gets, it's like you go insane making it and you kind of feel insane watching it too. You're like, oh my God, I feel like I'm one of these characters and I'm just kind of losing it a little bit. Yeah. Screenplay written by Wallen Green. I mentioned to you, Wallen Green also wrote another great film that we talk about a lot, The Wild Bunch. And this is a book or, or a, a, a film adaptation of a, of a French book called The Wages of Fear. Now, this has been adapted already by a director that we're um, uh, very fond of, Henry Georges Clouzot, um, who also went on to make another really great film called Les Diaboliques, The Diabolics. It's a great film. And the the, the, prim- the both films are, are fairly similar. It's about, you know, this, you know, oil field. We got to extinguish. We got to, you know, take these trucks of nitroglycerin and try and extinguish the fire. Now, they had a bit of trouble trying to get the, the rights to the this book to do this film, which they, they weren't calling like a remake, but more of kind of a retelling or reimagining of the source material because the original author didn't even care much for the French version. That, that one's pretty good, too. If you're looking for another great film, that one's called The Wages of Fear, also excellent. But once we get to the crux of our film, you know, then we kind of start talking about the themes of, of what the books are about and, and all of this, and it's, you know, it's about... It's about fate and, you know, survival. And one thing that freaking says was one of my themes is that there is good and evil in everyone. I was not out to make these guys heroes because I don't really believe in heroes. The people, the best of people have a dark side and it's a constant struggle for the best, better side to survive and thrive. So that's kind of what these characters are in a conflict with the entire time of this thing, which is very interesting. So let's kind of get to the real kind of crux of the film, which is this another really hard scene to watch is this explosion of this oil field, which seems to be the only source of like economy in this squalor of an environment that they're, that they're in. The people work at the oil rig and you know, they're laborers and it ignites one day. And once an oil field ignites, it's just an endless firestorm, right? You, the only essentially the only way to fight it, you have to fight fire with fire. You have to extinguish with the blast. There's some crazy stuff in that sequence when it's just people just blowing up and they're burning and crawling. And then that scene when the federales like bring the dead to the town square and they're like wrapped in plastic and charred to a crisp. Mm-hmm. And like it, they're like just handing the bodies over and then they make rags with with the with the police force. And it's just kind of utter chaos and they're, they're the bloody and the just skin just falling off like really, really gross. The whole movie's on the tinder box of explosion the entire film everybody's ready to go the entire movie so not just the travel that's about to incur or occur but all of these people in the streets that are just ready to riot just because i guess they're so miserable they have nothing else to do and the slightest little jostle or movement out of their comfortable space if you want to call it comfortable Mm -hmm. is going to set the whole thing off and that's the entire movie all of the characters all of the action sequences the movie is a razor thin line the whole time of balance and unbalance. And if you go and tilt a little too much on the unbalanced side and waver or tilt, bam, ignition. And they do that over and over and over and over again. Even the cops yeah. that are supposed to be the purveyors of justice in Veracruz mm-hmm. are constantly in the middle of a shakedown. Yeah. Roy Scheider, Jackie has found some measly job making three bucks a day. And the federales shake him down in the bar that serves as the only watering hole where you can get food and anything 
in this entire place. And of the $3 a day, they get to let him keep two and he's got to pay them out one. It's just everything. Mm-hmm. Everyone's always on the edge mm-hmm. in this film. Nickel about and dime to go. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you don't really get a break. One of the things we talk about on this show a lot is the structure of a story of a screenplay and, you know, good stories, you know, offer little outs for the a central through line of the conflict it's the same thing here too. So they have an opportunity and okay, we have this case of dynamite here in the jungle. If we use the dynamite on the explosion, we can blow this. We can get our oil field back because we set a commitment to deliver X amount of barrels. And if we don't deliver X amount, we may as well close up. One of the characters says, just close up shop. They close up shop. This little Shantate village is going to be rubble. Like there's going to be nothing left. (laughs) Yeah. So they go to the dynamite shack and that's even problematic because when they open it up, because they didn't turn the barrels when the, the, you know, the, the jungle, when it rains and it seeps into the barrels, everything's wet now. And the nitro has been leaking out of the sticks of dynamite. Literally it's on the hand of the guy when he throws it out. It's like, it's like almost like, like a gunfire when he, so now he says, you can't move that thing more than 10 feet without jostling it. You can't, if you take this in a helicopter, you could get it done in 20 minutes. But if you do that, you're going to ignite the helicopter. There's no way to get it there safely. And so now, now it becomes a quest of how do we get that there? Well, if we pack these trucks properly, we can take it through the, through the mountain terrain. And now it's about finding men willing enough, willing to lay it all on the line, have nothing left to lose essentially to volunteer for this assignment. The cases that hold the sticks of nitroglycerin, I think, are really important in a metaphorical way, too. If the whole movie's on the edge and these people are on the lam that make up the travel crew to transport this dynamite, essentially, they're already on the edge, right? They're having to get away from the people that are pursuing them. Mm-hmm. It's bad enough if the sticks in their healthy state with the turned barrel effect and the the seepage not happening are going to be so explosive that any friction between the two of them is going to cause them to ignite. But if it's a liquid on the bottom of these sticks, liquid is way more viscous Mm -hmm. than sticks wrapped in paper. So if you're getting back to the idea of it's on the edge, the slightest little jostle, and I want you all to think about just a glass full of any liquid, and as you barely move it, how much it jostles. Like, I'm just picking up the glass right here with the old Forrester in there, and it's it's shaking all over the place, and I'm not even moving. It's just it's just held. Yep. Look at that. Yep. Talk about on the edge. Yeah. So it's not just bad that you have to transport sticks of nitroglycerin. Mm-hmm. It's that you have to transport water, like a waterbed that's supporting the reactive agent that makes those sticks all the more explodable. Mm-hmm. And man, that's the whole film. Yeah. So there's there's tough, and then there's what this movie is, and that's the undercurrent, and I mean that mm-hmm. in all sense of the word, the undercurrent and the ripples that go through that that's ready to make this movie explode at any time. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. Well, Friedkin's been really good at that in all three films is really taking the time to build up the tension of the sequences at hand, yeah. whether it's uh, 
Popeye Doyle in the the train uh, chase or whether it's waiting for something to happen in Reagan's room. There's downtime, but the downtime is essentially a lit fuse that's just it just keeps going. And when it, and when something does happen, it, it's either unexpected or it's just so in your face that you're like, oh, my God. Wow. Let me ask you a philosophical question. OK. Here. There's an age old debate in film, and that's what's more important, great characters or great story. So let's take these three films that Friedkin did, mm -hmm. French Connection, The Exorcist, and Sorcerer, <clears throat> and the three protagonists in there. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to pose the same question to you. So we have Popeye Doyle, mm -hmm. Father Karras, and Jackie. Yeah. Are these three movies a support for great characters make film or great story makes great <laughs> film? Shit. Because <laughs> the characters are really great. Right. But the stories themselves are also really great. And so you get into a circular discussion because great characters create great stories. And if the characters are interesting, they're going to find themselves in more interesting scenarios and that drives story, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that's tough in this one. Mm -hmm. Maybe these movies, th this might be just right now thinking about it. I just haven't considered this until this very moment mm -hmm. like when I pose you this question. Yeah. This might be, I think for me, support that characters are what make the story. Mm. Like I think Friedkin's three-run film here is in recent memory, the best support I can come up with for great movies being the result of really great characters, Doyle, Karras, and Jackie. It's not to say that the story's bad either. No, no. But they are all, they are all three pretty character heavy pieces. And again, it's sort of in this period that you and I both like, so it's a little bit self-serving that I make this argument now. But, but they're, la they're layered and they got issues like big time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that makes it more interesting. You know, nothing's worse in a film than watching such like a one-dimensional character that's just there for fodder. Right. Here, I don't I don't feel like these these characters are just biding time or holding up uh, film space. I think they have a, a genuine purpose to the story at hand. So maybe for these three films in this short period of time, <laughs> we've come to a conclusion on that? Yeah, maybe just these three films. These three yeah. films in this director, we have characters. Yeah. Pushed. All right, I guess. Stamp that. Put it in the book somewhere. There you go. All right. So now we got, you know, our four characters. We have Dominguez, Roy Scheider, Jackie. We have uh, Victor Serrano, our Frenchman. We have Nilo, who's uh, this this Mexican assassin. And then we have Martinez, who's our, our Arab terrorist. And they go through the test of who's going to who's gonna drive the trucks. And they come out on top, except for the assassin guy. He's got another guy in his place, but he really wants in on this thing. Mm -hmm. What I love so much is after they're picked, this company is just so fun, like lacks on funds or unwilling to even give them the benefit of success that they have to build their own trucks. Mm -hmm. Kind of almost from the ground up a little bit. Yeah. Like this company won't even give them the tools to succeed. It's in their hands, literally. Within the two trucks. So one is called Lazaro, Lazarus, and the other one Sorcerer, which is what the, the film title is. And you get into Sorcerer, and I, that becomes a bit of a problem of the film as well. It's release. When people went to go see a film of Sorcerer, they're like, directed by the exorcist, this is some supernatural thing. Instead, it takes on a, a heavier meaning of, of sorcery, fate, uh, you know, purpose, and kind of where you fall in in those lines. Because... Essentially, what ends up happening in this film is, as far as these guys tried to escape the horrors of their past, they're put into an even more horrific situation. And do they even really escape that in the end of the film can be can be said. 
But I love that sequence, a montage of them just assembling rust and buckets and nothing really looks like it's going to work right. And they're doing their best because what, what do they have left to lose at this point? Right. Yeah. Stay where they are and make $3 a day to have the Federales take two of them and yeah. sop some bread and <laughs> goulash that's yeah. rue is mud yeah, exactly. out of some dirty bowl that mm-hmm. the silverware is only clean because the bartender wiped it off <clears throat> on his shirt before he like, what do you have to lose? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're right. I do want to speak specifically about the truck building bit. Mm-hmm. Did you notice how much time? And I thought this was also really well done. Yeah. How much time they spend on the shocks and like the transport, like the, mm-hmm. um, the chassis in a sense. Yeah. There's very little supplies to build these trucks that are going to transport mm-hmm. this very volatile sub substance. Yep. But man, they sure do a good time or they sure put a good amount of time trying to make that suspension as, as sturdy and as strength as possible. Mm-hmm. Cause it has to be. It definitely does. We're carrying three cases each. One is enough to blow your fire. Six cases will blow out the whole field. That means you don't think all the trucks will make it. One of us is a backup. We want Dober, a legal residence, or we don't drive. You leave in four hours. So they try and bargain. They, they know the stakes at hand and say, like, we want more money and we want to establish legal residency here. Because they're all leaving, living here illegally. That's why they keep getting patted down by the police all the time. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to make some stake in the game. But it's, you know, it's the morning of, they're about to head out, and our assassin guy has killed off the, the other man, Mar- Marquez, I think, or his, his name was, to take his spot. But since th- there's no time to call the police to arrest this man or anything, and he's like, I'm, I'm the best driver of all of you put together, you need me. So he gets stake in this thing as well. So now you got this like crazy assassin man who could just kind of turn on on a dime here and just kind of turn the tables on everybody. But then we're off. We're off on the long, dangerous 218-mile road to deliver this nitroglycerin. At about seven miles an hour. Seven miles. That's why I always, when when I talk about the wages of fear and sorcerer, I'm always like, you wouldn't think a film where trucks drive five to seven miles an hour could be as suspenseful as it as it really could be but when you think about the environment and the terrain which takes on a characteristic all into of itself now you're dealing with the elements you're dealing with weather you're dealing with the bridge suspension and and then mvp again of, of this film uh my bro from last week robert nudson the sound design just just listen to a little bit this is when serrano and martinez are trying to cross that bridge and he gets uh, one of the wheels stuck in the in the in the bridge. Again, sounds taken on a characteristic of itself to kind of ramp up that tension a bit. And it's raw sounding. We're hearing the thrust of the engines, the lack of stability and support in the bridge. It all feels like rotted wood that's just kind of crunching underneath the weight of these tires. And when that wheel sinks in, you're just like, 
oh my god because the even the in the back the things shift ever so slightly and you're just like yikes and it's just all about you know getting through the element they're on the edge of cliffs and like the, the gravel's just like seeping down into the ground as they drive over it we're looking at like world war ii era transport trucks big heavy eight ton monsters there's not a lot of handling in these cars mm-hmm. There's certainly a significant amount of weight. Yep. And they're not even constructed from their original form. That's been rusted out and it's been thrown together with whatever pieces you could salvage off other like destroyed automobiles. So when you get on these tiny, tiny, narrow pathways that have bridges built from fallen trees that are constantly rained on, so they're being rotted and devoured by the just the natural elements of Mother Nature. Boy, you have a formidable task. And again, for a theme in film I normally don't like, which is man versus nature, Mm -hmm. it's done in a cool way in this movie. And the roads giving around every every turn. Look, you go over a large rock in the road on just the terrain, what you think is a normally kind of flat path. And it's over. You bump the car too much and it's over. So Mm -hmm. what we have is seven miles an hour, and either your co-pilot is out in front of you, kind of clearing the way as the car is traveling, mm-hmm. or both of your eyes are on the road peeled, looking for any little undulation or stone that might change your life forever with a bump. It's an impossible, impossible journey. And then you do it at seven miles an hour. Yeah. It may not be safe, but it's sure not fast. And this, this all leads up to what I consider probably the standout sequence of the film, which is this bridge. Oh, my God. Gorging over this this river. Twice. <laughs> Twice, literally. And the, it's a rope bridge. Like, all the wood paneling that would make it a road is all kind of missing or rotted. And it's like a torrent. It's like a typhoon yeah. <laughs> at this point. And... Um, Nilo's like, I'm getting out of here. And Scheider, Roy Scheider, Jackie throws him on the ground. He's like, you're going to leave me on that and you're going to guide me. He's like, because I need you. I'm going to drive and we're going to get over that bridge. And once they get on there, you're just like, oh my, the bridge is swaying back and forth. It looks like the truck's going to tip into the river and it's going over those bridges. It's breaking plywood and it's just like, it looks hopeless at that point. As much as you're worried about the wheels going through the support beams that make up that bridge, the part that's more harrowing is the swaying that the bridge does to where the car is essentially, I don't know, 70 degrees leaning towards one side, and it's about to just tumble over into the river, which would be scary enough, but you'll be dead long before that because that stuff's going to explode. The way that shot... Mm -hmm. POV in front of the car and from behind, just watching it, you can feel the weight Mm -hmm. in the screen as you're looking at this car, this huge, this immense truck, Mm -hmm. sway on this bridge that's basically like rotted out trees and some rope with a couple planks of two by four so that you can have something that looks like a perpendicular apparatus on the planks of rotted wood to create a, oh my God. Exactly. It's so good. And then there's a guy in front of it, like kneeling down, saying a little to the right, a little to the left. <laughs> it's, it is truly harrowing to watch that. 
it was really well done. And I'm just like, as great as the car chase sequences and the French connection and mm-hmm. everything that's kind of shown in the exorcist, man, this might be the best thing freaking's ever kind of put together. Like the way it's shot, the way it's cut together, the sound uh, just, just kind of, you know, it's like ripping twine. And oh yeah, there's nitroglycerin in the back of the truck too, if you forgot. <laughs> so. I love the sound of those engines because there's no idle gentle into mm-hmm. 600 RPMs. It's just zero to 600 RPMs. Vroom, yeah. Vroom, vroom. yeah. And that alone gives like, oh, it's going to jerk it. The, the wheel tread is going to catch mm-hmm. and that's going to cause it to go forward, which is then going to cause a huge jerk. Yeah. And then that shakes the nitroglycerin and boom. It's over. And then that's done through sound so well. And then filmed on location. And so I want to play a clip here of Friedkin talking about when when this was when this was filmed. So I was about to tell you that when I arrived in Tuxtepec for the bridge scene, I see what appeared to be hundreds and was, in fact, hundreds of people leaving with sacks over their backs. And they were and I said to my uh, guide who was uh, Mexican, is this a holiday? I mean, wh- where are they all going? And he's, he went, <clears throat> uh, well, I said, no, what, why are all these people from the village leaving? He said, because the director of The Exorcist is here. Oh, wow. And it was a very, what a metaphor. they were a very religious people then. Did you care? I was, uh, well, I didn't want people to leave their fucking homes. No, but... Of the, course I cared. But not enough to you, leave. No. Because you got a movie to make. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you can't help what people believe. People believe all sorts of crazy things. Crazy. So not only are you dealing with the elements, filming on location, just your reputation of what you've done is a hindrance to the way you're treated out there. Yeah, because there's a lot of sequences that use a lot of extras, Mm -hmm. especially the bit you're talking about where the federales Mm -hmm. unload those charred bodies from the oil production plant explosion. Yeah. They're scared to death because here comes the director of the exorcist. (laughs) In a sense, it kind of takes on the same feel as the drivers of the cars. Mm -hmm. How much do I have to pay you Mm -hmm. for you to neglect all of your instincts mm-hmm. and ignore them when it says run because here's this very very religious people saying that's the director of the exorcist we're out of here because yep. that guy is bad news yep until he gives them enough money to show up yeah it's such a such a strange correlation between both of the two films mm-hmm. and how the people in them viewed the characters were viewed as characters and as mm-hmm. real people yeah <laughs> i love that line too you didn't leave well, hell no, I didn't leave. I had a movie I had to miss. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. I'm going to play just another clip. This isn't related to Sorcerer, but it's the same interview. It's So Friedkin's be talking to Nicholas Winding Riffin, who directed Drive, Only God Forgives. He had that show on Prime, um, Too Old to Die Young, or whatever that hell, the hell the thing was called. That director's really full of himself. So in this clip, he's talking about how great he thinks his film Only God Forgives, which isn't, that movie's not good. And Friedkin calls him out on it. 
Oh, I'm like you. I have no regrets about Only God Forgives. I think it's a masterpiece, and it is. I just didn't make it very expensive. Is there a doctor in the house? We, we need to get a medic in here. Is there, is there a doctor around? <laughs> I just didn't make you, it. If you I, think I, that's a masterpiece, what is Citizen Kane? It's great. But it's very, it was an inexpensive movie, so financially... Who gives a shit? I have just two questions left. When you were mentioning... I have a third. Where is there a medic for this man? <laughs> good for good for William Friedkin. I love it. You, you can watch the whole interview on YouTube. Like, you could tell that these guys maybe don't care much for each other, but they were obligated to do this interview because the whole thing's really tense like that. But Friedkin doesn't cut corners. Like he said, like you think that's good, or you think this? Like no way. Like what's that director's name? Nicholas Winding Riffin. He also made that other film, The Neon Demon, which his films are just, I like Drive, but like I, everything else is. Ugh, that's like, one that we don't agree on. Like, yeah, who's that guy? I think Drive sucks. Yeah, so he's yeah, shame on very him. Very pretentious. Ugh, yeah, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Good for Friedkin. Yeah, I just, it just wanted to, because we've been talking a lot about him and just his uh, pretensity to not deal with bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And just totally just call it and tell it how it is. To that. Yeah. Like, get yeah. over yourself and get to work. Yeah. Good for him. Yep. So let's get to the next kind of great sequence of the film. So after this crazy bridge and the torrential downpour, they didn't get another obstacle on the road here. Now they've reached a, like a crossroad. There's this big, gigantic trunk of a tree just blocking their path. Jackie Scheider thinks that, oh, we'll just hack our way. We'll just bushwhack our way through. And like, <laughs> hey, you're going to cut these trees down with just one machete. Like they like throwing a pocket knife at the Great Wall of China. Yeah, so there's, there's no way. But literally, they have a great weapon that they're towing with them. And again, set up so well in the opening, we have this terrorist bomb expert who jerry-rigs this Rube Goldberg bomb contraption to use the nitro to blow their path. And it, the way that's done is very very intricate and rudimentary and I think just really done really well. This is a spectacular example of setup and payoff. Mm -hmm. So all of the four vignettes that we saw at the beginning of the film are now starting to have significance in the way the film unfolds. This PLO terrorist bomber guy knows how to make bombs. And boy, like you said it so well, Jerry Rig, we're talking mousetrap. Weighted with a bag full Talking of about sand. The game yeah, the game, yeah. <laughs> like sets this thing up that creates the most amazing natural fuse that could possibly be done. So through a bunch of sticks that they've carved from other trees, they rig like a pulley system. Mm -hmm. And the inciting element that's going to spark the nitro to blow up the tree trunk to allow them passage through this blocked road is a rock that's held together or, or rigged through those tree branches with a piece of string. And on the other end, through another tree branch, like the cartoon um, slingshot tree Y is... Yeah, Coyote would be very yeah. jealous of <laughs> yeah, this contraption. Exactly. Yeah, Wiley Coyote would be thrilled to watch this. They have a bag filled with sand that's acting as sort of like a dam mm -hmm. or a stopper and is... We prick the hole in the bag. Yeah. The sand begins to seep out. The fuse is essentially lit. Man, that's so good. Mm -hmm. And they've already left in the trucks, but our PLO bomber guy almost was washed away on the bridge sequence about 10 minutes earlier, can barely move, and he's got to kind of shuffle, struggle 
out of the blast radius that they hope is going to be good enough to clear this tree. And man, that is such a great, and I mean this, mm -hmm. great 15 minutes in film. That's the sand. That's falling. the sand. Sounds like a fuse lit though, doesn't it? Mm. Really intricately well done. It's it's a pretty long sequence, like maybe 15-ish minutes. But yeah, you're just like, you gotta be careful with the nitro. Like, be careful how you set this up. If you fail, like you're just gonna make an even bigger miss. But like it's enough of a path that's cleared for them to kind of get on their way through. Another obstacle averted. And by this point, they all look like shit. Oh, yeah. They're all sweaty and bloodied and bruised. Again, you mentioned Martinez has like got like a limp in his leg now because he almost got run over on the bridge and he like messed up his leg. They're in bad shape at this point. So now finally they're kind of like on the path again and... Going along pretty well. Yeah. The smoothest <laughs> path they've had so far. And they start talking to each other. Look, here's... <laughs> anytime you like let your guard down and start allowing yourself to be vulnerable. Well, we talked about letting your guard down a lot last week. We sure did, mm -hmm, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so Victor, the Frenchman, Serrano, gives the watch that his wife has given him the last time he saw her before he had to run out of France for his embezzlement scam. He shows it to... Martinez. Martinez. And he says, you know, my wife, da-da-da-da-da. And no sooner does that happen, than their wheel hits a rock, the wheel explodes... The car tips over, and I love that shot briefly, which is we go to the back of the truck and we see the cases of nitro coming right to the camera. Mm -hmm. Boom. Huge explosion. <laughs> That's another thing, too, that I really found myself appreciating. How much he did and how well he did explosions. Yeah. Which is really dangerous on set, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Like that oil refinery that is just blowing, essentially, fire for <laughs> days. Yeah. On set, man, yeah, that's dangerous. really not oil doing that. That's mm -hmm. all created through some pyrotechnics. Mm -hmm. And the pyrotechnic team for this film had to be yeah. top-notch. On it. On it. Yeah. Blow the hell out of that tree. And I guess the path is cleared. Um, but in so doing, when that tree got blown up, you had to be very careful that all of the people around that could shoot it yeah. were out of the blast radius. Yeah. I mean... I to that man, I, I think mm -hmm. technically handled very, very well. And then we get that reaction shot of of Nilo and and Scheider mm -hmm. as they're like putting water in the in the in the in the car and the engine here so that it can keep going. And they're just kind of see off in the distance this huge explosion. So once they approach it, and Martinez is all torn up and all bloody again, it shows carnage like appropriately. Because it leaves a mark on you. I think you feel the casualty and the weight, the wages of fear yeah. on your shoulders in this thing. So then they're there and they're just kind of looking at the wreckage. And then they're stopped by like another team of like federales that are just like, what are you carrying back there? Again, this is very treasure of the Sierra Madre at this mm -hmm. point. Right. What are you carrying back there? And they're like, yeah, we got yeah, toilet paper and we're carrying yeah, so the supplies. And they want it. They're, they're going to steal the truck because they need supplies. And they're going to take it off to whatever whatever their village is. Well, I don't know what's a good answer there. Do you tell them it's supplies? Do you tell them it's nitro? Because people that are that hell-bent on, on violence are going to want the nitro as much as they're going to want toilet paper and granola bars. Yeah, it's almost like you have to lie at them. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, this is kind of like a lose. It's just a total losing situation because now they're all held at gunpoint. They have but one gun, and the assassin has it in his pocket, and he has to use it. And we see his skill, but he's not able to take out three guys quickly. He takes one to, like, the stomach and mm-hmm. slowly starts bleeding out. Kind of yeah, crazy, but we get to see... Scheider shows his skill with the sharp blade of a shovel on the fetter, on this bandito clan's leader and almost decapitates him. Mm-hmm. So... Again, back to the violence piece, uh, in a movie that is taking place at seven miles an hour over rocky terrain in trucks, we're getting another dose, heavy dose of really, really, really well and appropriate use, well-constructed in the appropriate use of violence. Mm -hmm. There's times in this movie I feel like I'm watching a little bit of a De Palma film. Yeah. With the violent, I mean, the violent element. Well, we've seen three of these films now, and I think Friedkin handles the violent, whether in French Connection or Exorcist or that, I think he handles the portrayal of it very well. Yeah, I agree. It fits his film and the tone that it, that's set up in it. Yeah. So now we're in the home stretch. And some interest, it, it reminded me of Mad Max, you know, when they're in that kind of like blue desert. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this wasteland. And they're all kind of, they've lost it at this point. Scheider's kind of like, they're talking and they're like laughing. He's like, I'm going to hire the two best whores that like the village has ever had. Scored by Tangerine Dream. Yes. So it's almost like you're tripping pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to say this earlier when you brought up Tangerine Dream. Yeah. The synth effects that they use have a rolling feel to the way it works. And mm-hmm. I think that also works in this movie because the tires just continue to sort of roll Ooh, along good. slowly. It kind of, mm-hmm. it's just really organically fit nicely with each other. Mm-hmm. Scheider's going through, Jackie's going through flashback after flashback over flashback of all the terrible things that have happened in the last two years. Mm-hmm. And then we get the other piece of mechanical failure. He just mm-hmm. runs out of gas. Yeah. He's some miles away still from the oil field that they needed to deliver the nitro. So what's his solution? Yeah. Two miles left. I'm just going to walk it there. So he just carries the nitro (laughs) in his arms. Beyond delirious at this point. It's like stumbling around. Yeah. Probably has heat stroke. Divinely inspired because I don't know how he made it with all of the jostling that that case is going through. And only one case makes it. Mm -hmm. Like he said in the clip, they only need one case. Everything else is just... Insurance. <laughs> Golly, yeah. So he makes it, stumbles in front of the oil field. We assume they're able to put it out, and they're going to set him up. Now, well, he essentially gets, like, earlier we forgot to mention that he's, he's like, those guys don't make it. There's no way they get off that bridge. It's double the shares for us. Fred C. Dobbs just even has the Dobbs hat, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the Humphrey Bogart hat. Right. They're all dead now, so he's going to get all the shares, and he's going to get set up real nicely. But when he comes back to the village... The village is going to be able to retain some type of economic stability now that the oil field's going to be back in business and they're going to be able to deliver on their promise of the barrels that they said they were going to uh, deliver. He's just looks exhausted, bruises under his eye, cuts everywhere. He looks tired. He looks whether, whether that's the story or the production. To me, this was very telling on, on the film. When we talked about the Jaws episode, we talked so much about the shark breaking down and what a nightmare that was for everyone. And Robert Shaw was a big pain in the ass and Spielberg. Drunk the whole time. (laughs) Super drunk. I'll drink to your leg. Um, Roy Scheider said uh, filming Sorcerer made Jaws look like a picnic. That's fair. That's very telling on how difficult it was to make this film. Mm -hmm. Because that's one of the all-time troubled film productions ever, Jaws. This is just exasperated like so much Mm, yeah and i think you see that in his character at the end of that where you know they're gonna 
give him this passport and everything and he's going to be able to you know go to a different city but he just kind of like wants a chance to just mellow out for a second and he goes and asks this waitress that's kind of been floating around the movie for a little bit just for a dance just for like just some sense of humanity or or just normalcy again to this little wilty jazz tune that's playing and Matt, I love, you know me, I love film endings like this. Left so kind of, well, this one's pretty concrete, but kind of open-ended because we don't really see everything. Where after all this running from your past and looking over your shoulder and going through the wages of fear and this crazy quest that they've had to go through, the, the, the last hour of this film is insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. As the camera pulls out of the bar, up rolls up this taxi, and it's the mob guys from Jersey that have finally tracked him down. And Jackie's in no place to fight back or run at this point. And we just watch them go into the bar as we pull back from, from the bar, and we hear like one gunshot, and we cut to black. After the nitro's been delivered to the oil field, the next time we see Jackie is in his Sunday best cleaned up, sort of shaved as much as he yeah, could yeah. probably do it with like mm -hmm. the blade of a knife or something. <clears throat> His wounds are mostly attended to and he's kind of clean, but he kind of looks a little bit like the woman in the wedding mm -hmm. with his, Ooh, with his bruised, you know, darkened eye. Ooh, it's even under the same eye. Right. And in his, his suit. So he's in the bar and he gets the 40,000 pesos from the oil field owner and he says, well, what am I supposed to do with this? This is just a check. And he says, um, this guy is going to come and meet you and he'll take you and take you to the place where you can cash it. And then the oil field baron guy says, I don't know where you're going to go, but you might want to try Managua. And Jackie says, I can't go to Managua. And I don't, I don't I'm not sure why. Yeah. Other than maybe he knows what's coming for him. Sure. I think at this point, Jackie's not entirely shocked that he's maybe been set up sure so he kind of looks around and it plays on that if you were and i mean me and my friends used to play this game all the time i don't know if you did but if mm. you were on a plane and you knew it was going down what's the last thing you would do yeah right and mm -hmm. usually it involves some interaction with a female with me and my <laughs> stupid friends whatever yeah well this kind of happens in the film i think he knows he's going down his number's up yep so he looks around, and I love that his choice is this woman who we've seen in the film a few times, and she is not a classic beauty. This is a probably 65-year-old laborer missing her teeth, kind, but far from yeah. gorgeous. Mm -hmm. But there's just no other choice, and hasn't that been pretty consistent throughout the film yep. up to here? Mm-hmm. So, like you said, some tenny jazz tune plays on the jukebox, and he takes her, and can I have this dance? And they start dancing, and we go cut to outside, and the gangsters roll up, <laughs> minus that awesome suit that we saw the guy in earlier. Oh, a plaid a suit? Monochromatic oh plaid, God, wool yeah. plaid. So good. It's worth watching just for that. I think I want that. <laughs> um, and then we bird's eye view. <clears throat> Here, snap. Mm -hmm. And you know that he's just been shot. And I kind of feel like, I don't know what that oil field guy's name is. Yeah. That he set the whole thing up. Probably. He doesn't want to give this guy 40,000 40, pesos. That's mm -mm. probably all the money he has. Yeah. And the reason that they went on this quest anyway was to keep this business alive. He's been expendable the whole time. Mm -hmm. So why would that change now? Yeah. Again, great ending. I'm glad they didn't just leave it with the two of them dancing. I would have been pretty pissed. Yeah. 
for those guys to show up and do him in so good. It's, you can't outrun your fate if that was just inevitable to happen for him the whole time, regardless of how hard the road was to get there. It still catches up with you. Well, if you like the idea of sorcery, which you brought up earlier, so I'm assuming you do because mm-hmm. you brought it up, then mm-hmm. it plays into that. Like yeah. you can't outrun fate. Yeah. The sorcery, the magical element of just mother nature and what fate has set up for you. The great ending. I know people that don't like film endings like that, but like these are my favorite type of film. Endings. <laughs> I mean, the two times that Roy Scheider loses control of the car is when it runs out of gas at the end, when he wrecks the getaway vehicle. And watching him stagger away both times is very similar. One time he's carrying nitro, which is heavy Mm -hmm. and a burden that if he makes the wrong step, it's going to explode. Earlier in the film, he staggered away with the burden of knowing that he just killed his whole crew or got the ones that survived incarcerated over some amount of money. And what's really cool about that is that's what ties it back together at the end, the money. He's still going to have to pay or the thievery or the the clandestine theft, whether it be from these poor people through this oil baron mm-hmm. in this little, like you said, Chantate town. Yep. Or whether it be with his crew. I just it's a great ending. I have a ton of facts here and then I have some questions I want to ask you. Okay. Okay. Twenty two million dollar budget, sixteen million dollar worldwide gross. It's not its fault though, right? So it's what it opened up against. Okay, so that leads right. So Universal and Paramount had to share distribution because it it, it just it started at two million and just escalated. It just got out of control because of just you know the elements. Rain. <laughs> yeah, it was released three weeks after Star Wars: A New Hope in 1977. Nobody was seeing anything but Star Wars at that time. So the film editor went to go see Star Wars, and he says, "When our trailer faded to black." sorcerer uh the curtains kept opening and opening and opening and you could start to feel this thing coming over you overwhelming you and it made our film look like this like amateur piece of crap he's and he's he went and told he's like i told billy you got to go see this thing because we're being blown out of the water Mm. it was just a different type of cinematic experience so it went to grauman's theater for a week the week it came out sorcerer yeah Mm -hmm. they pulled it after a week and put star wars back in wow so that's just the fate it's just you didn't know you were going to open up against maybe the most important film that ever got made right (laughs) no it's right (laughs) literally so based on this bomb universal had a contract with freaking they voided that he freaking moved to europe with plans to just totally sever ties with the american film industry because of just how awful this had gone for him the film was destroyed by critics, so it didn't even have that on its side. Why? Yeah. In retrospect, this is, again, why I like about film and looking at things in a new light, much like a film like The Thing. It's been more favorably reassessed by critics. You know, we've talked about Tarantino uh, on this podcast before and what a film fanatic he is. He's listed his top 10 favorite films of all time, like The Good, Bad, The Ugly, and films like that. This is in his top 10 yeah. of all time. Stephen King, it's in his most reliable films to recommend to people. So I think it's finally, and, and the other reason it didn't never found an audience was like films that bombed in the 70s and 80s found a market on home video because the rights got so screwed up at Paramount and Universal, they could never properly release this so you could watch it at home so it could find a rental audience. Mm. You couldn't go to the video store and like rent this thing. Interesting. Not until recently when it got you know, bought by Warner brothers and they put out this great Blu-ray that we watched today. And then to me, 
Star Wars changed the name of the game too. It all became all about blockbuster filmmaking and that era that we like that's been all about this cast kind of ended. So now I have this great quote by, by Justin White. He says, the downfall of the experimental period in Hollywood, that 60s era, was followed by a retreat to large-scale grand filmmaking, blockbuster, staple, everything. So filmmakers like Peter Bogdanovich, Friedkin, Arthur Penn, they still continued to have cinematic involvement, but their most ambitious work had been produced during the peak of the new Hollywood era, which was characterized by financial experimentation. People were willing to take a chance on something we had never quite seen before, all these great characters we had seen. But when Star Wars hit, that's what Hollywood wants. They want the next Star Wars. They want Raiders of the Lost Ark. They want E.T. They want Ghostbusters. They don't want Sorcerer or the French Connection. So that kind of you know falls by the wayside, and that's kind of been the, the curse of this film. It was all about bad timing. Maybe had this film come out in the early 70s versus 77, maybe it would have had a chance. I think that's important, what you just read. It's the closing of one era and the opening of another. It's the John Schlesinger and Midnight Cowboy and Mike Nichols and The Graduate and Mm -hmm. Bogdanovich in Last Picture Show Mm -hmm. and Friedkin in Sorcerer. It's the end of the anti-hero that represented Mm -hmm. the hate Ashbery late 60s, mid 70s period that plays really well on film and the reemergence of Joseph Campbell's quintessential hero hero. Escapism filmmaking. Right? Mm-hmm. In essentially the same month. Yeah. Think about how quickly that turned. Yeah. Because we went from, you know, the new era of Hollywood that was out of the studio system and a little bit rebellious and backlot and on location and middle finger to what was palatable and musical and pretty and and harsh mm-hmm. and bleak and stark and we don't need color unless it appears organically yeah. to a reimagining of maybe the most quintessential mm-hmm. Hollywood genre, which is the Western. That's science fiction in space. It's yep. a it's a Western. Yeah. And you get it. Mm-hmm. The bad guy in black, Darth Vader versus the good guy in white, whether it be Obi-Wan or Luke. Mm-hmm. In the same month, Jesse, this is such a cool, cool realization how quickly things can change in so Hollywood. Think about that too. So uh Apocalypse Now was seventy eight. Yeah. It didn't stand a chance. Didn't have a prayer. Yeah. Yeah, at all. And then everything just changed after that. Well, look at the heroes going forward from you know, John McClain to Rocky to Luke Skywalker. You get mm-hmm. the very honorable mm-hmm. hero even christopher reeve Ooh. as superman at this time is per- it's perfect for this period mm-hmm. it, it all honorable heroes honorable moral morally sound versus dominguez jackie who's just like we get all the shiz now <laughs> right <laughs> totally different this ain't popeye doyle anymore it's a different era of filmmaking and it's just a shame that it had to end as quickly as it began it's interesting too that the one that kind of closes the the store or the bar that night mm-hmm. is the same guy that wrote the wild bunch. Yeah. I would argue the most important scene in the wild bunch is watching those kids burn those ants with mm-hmm. the magnifying glass as, yeah. as our wild bunch looks on and just sort of, ah, that's so good. What we're watching is the death mm-hmm. of an era mm-hmm. and the wild bunch knew it even before it was coming. 
And that's what that whole film is about. Yep. And for the guy that wrote Gaylor to write that film mm -hmm. and then do this one is such an honorable and appropriate send off sure. to the anti-hero started era. it and ended it. <laughs> and we'll get it back in comics with Miller and the eighties. And like, it's going to show up with, um, but I don't think Watchmen to, and Alan Moore and all that, but like, never to the same effect, not to the same effect. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. So I have a couple questions for you. What's your favorite tasting note or favorite sequence scene of the film? I think that suspended bridge over the river. That's the quintessential moment in this movie. And I, I know it's two different parts, but I'm going to put them both together because essentially it's that same thing twice. Definitely. I just sat there with my my face and my hands stressed. Yeah. I've been in a lot of film, Jesse, and mm -hmm. it doesn't happen often that that's the place I find myself in. It happened in Hereditary, mm -hmm. um, and it happened again today. It's happened a few other times too, but sure. it has to be that. Mm -hmm. Watching, I just thought, oh my God, that, that production-wise, that truck is going over that stupid rope that has no chance of supporting that eight tons. And somehow with duct tape and spirit gum and the grace of God, it doesn't mm -hmm. somehow it doesn't. And I don't know if he just got lucky or if that car is bolted onto that bridge in such a way that it can't topple. Yeah. Regardless, it looks locked down dead nuts, accurate as yeah. to what I would expect that. And you have to wait as that bridge is swaying. Yeah. You have to wait for the sway to come back to center. And when it's centered, you've got about one second to move forward a little bit. Yeah. Because if it starts to go <clears> the <throat> other way and you're now 70 degrees towards the water, then you can't roll forward because you will roll over. Mm -hmm. So it's just masterfully done and incredibly stressful. That's the one I'm going to pick. It's a sequence that has to be seen to be believed because of the way it's done. I mean, without the weather, it would be enough yeah. because of the condition of the bridge. The fact that it's like a, practically a typhoon here with so much rain and just you're just fighting the elements both behind the camera and in front of it. Crazy. It's 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 really well done. I think that's the best sequence Freakins ever directed. It's ambitious, first of all, but it looks great on film. It sure does. Okay, take your pick, Matt. It's time for... I need to take a shot, man. Just like The Exorcist, I think this film offers a handful that you could pick from just from the brutality that the film offers. I'm going to I'm going to go first with okay. this one. Yeah. It's um It's that sequence when they're unloading those burned bodies and then the the, the townspeople are just heartbroken first of all cuz there's loved ones in there, but then just furious and you just kind of see humanity get the best of itself in that sequence. It's violent, it's ugly, it's uncompromising in the way it's shot it's, it's bloody it's fiery it's it's insane and i think that's that that scene is the definition of what this film represents it's funny that scene reminded me so much of the ending sequence from the wild bunch mm -hmm. just the mass casualty that's mm -hmm. going on yeah i love that choice that's mm -hmm. not going to be mine but i love that one yeah mine's a little bit more subdued actually in mm -hmm. a movie that's not really about that I think it's Jackie collapsing after he's delivered the nitro in the, like in the face of that oil geyser that's just been flaming for weeks. Mm -hmm. The collapse is a collective that I think I needed in that movie. And it gave me 20 seconds of peace yeah. before he's basically going to go get shot in the bar. But that's probably where I'm going to go. Like, Oh my God. In so far as, Oh my God, it's finally over. Finally over. Let me take a shot. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to one thing before we get into the 
the nightcap. So we talked about Omar. What, I got another question. Oh, for sorry. You okay, sorry, my bad. Who's the master distiller on this film? <sighs> Can I go, Friedkin? I think it's time. It is. Yeah. Um, it is time. We knowingly didn't acknowledge him in either of the previous two weeks. It's mm-hmm. just time. Yeah. It's a masterful three-run yeah. film sequence. So, yeah, Friedkin. It's a hard film to direct. If they said, you're going to go out to Latin America, you're going to film in these little narrow roads and in the thick of the jungle, you're going to get malaria. You got malaria. You lost like 50 pounds. Cast and crew, half of them had to go to the hospital because of injuries and just sickness and food poisoning. And it just sounded like, it didn't sound fun. Like when you think of movies, yeah, sometimes movies can be fun to make and you're like, you're shooting on a, on a set and the, the climate's controlled and you get to go to your cushy little trailer and have some charcuterie board in between takes, mm-hmm. not out here in the fucking jungle. No, you're in it yeah. big time. And that takes guts by anyone who's willing to take that on. I have to applaud Friedkin and Coppola. We'll cover Apocalypse now because it's the same situation. And he had to deal with the psycho Marlon Brando on that film. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, I wouldn't envy anyone doing that, but I think he handles it masterfully. And I just, it just always breaks my heart when this happens to films when they just don't find their audience, but maybe better suited because I prefer films that have better legs and find their audience later in life. Yeah. And they're, I think they're more appreciated after the fact. Yeah. Better than being one and done. You know what I mean? This happens from time to time. We get stuff that we missed and that's coming just a minute, but yeah, let's talk about Friedkin for one more quick moment. Sure. We talked a little bit earlier about how, when you do something that is this ambitious and on location, it leaves you very devoid. So Friedkin's next two films are the Brinks job, which is a movie I've never even heard of. Yeah. Yeah. It's a comedy and about a bank heist with, uh, Whatever. That's just a job. Yeah. Cruising. Ugh. He doesn't have, I mean, he has deal of the century to live and die in LA. Like this is how lost I he like is. I like that one. Okay. But he's so lost that in 1994, his next largest grossing film is blue chips. Wow. The basketball movie with Shaquille O'Neal. Nick Nolte. You did the French connection, the exorcist mm-hmm. and sorcerer. And somehow they thought you were right for blue chips. Yeah. Wow. Look at Coppola. Coppola in the nineties. He did that movie Jack with Robin Williams, where he's like the old kid. That's mm-hmm. like accelerated aging. Yep. Like you just, you fall into, this is all they're giving me. I may as well do it, but you can you, the passion's not there anymore. I think blue chip sucks, so I'm not going <laughs> to no, say it that. Does. But it definitely sucks. He, he doesn't make a good. I don't movie. think Jade's good either. No, or Bug. Yeah, I don't think he does another good movie until 2011, which is Killer Joe with Matthew McConaughey, which is an important film, maybe for both of them. Maybe that's it, the beginning of the reconnaissance, right? Yeah, that's where he starts to yep. find his footing again and get away from Kate Hudson and do something that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's it for freaking. That's kind of about it. I mean, he did two more: um, The Devil and Father Amorth. And then he did like a documentary in 2018 called Friedkin Uncut. But I think he's, and part of it might be age too. Yeah, he's like, but my God, from the French connection to blue chips in less than nine moves. No, it's tough. It's blue chips. Hard to make films in Hollywood. Yeah. It really is. And they take a toll on you uh, creatively 
And to, to me, then that separates, you know, you look like at a, at a Michael Bay and that's a man that I feel most times in it to like cash in a paycheck and make it as loud and bombastic as possible. Yeah. And then you have guys like Friedkin and Coppola that are, I, I really feel like they're in it because they have something to say or something to put into that some of themselves into the filmmaking process. And I like directors like that um, because creating, man, me, you and I spent hours on end trying to come up with sequences on screenplay and how those are going to play out. I mean, that's burning the creative juices to some extent. Yeah. Now, to kind of just wrap up the freaking discussion with one more quote from him. This is, man, This I just want to put this on a plaque and put it in this room here with us. Friedkin says, every film is actually three films. The film you conceive and plan, the film you actually shoot, and the film that emerges in the editing room. Mm. So no matter however you envision it, you could have this grand, bombastic vision for how your thing looks. That's never how it turns out. No. Never. Nope. So to that, to Friedkin, to, to these three films, well, let's rate it. Let's rate Rock it. gut, well call, single barrel, top shelf. That'll let you go first. Um... I don't know how I can't but say this is top shelf. That's like six weeks in a row. Pretty close, right? I think we're six weeks really in a row. Really good for you. <laughs> it's an excellent film. It is. And, I, and it was talking about Friedkin. It was almost impossible not to kind of fall into this trap of, of top shelf which with talking with these films. But I was very much looking forward to showing this to you just to kind of get your take on it because of People haven't seen it, and I hope this episode, more than anything, forces people to go check this film out. Well, we can do Cruise and Blue Chips and Bug if you want to, but who the hell wants to watch those movies? <laughs> no. so that's sort of the point. Yeah. If we come to a bad movie organically, then I'm fine with it. We did our rock gut cask on purpose. Yeah. We'll do another one, I'm sure, at some point. But I'm not in any hurry to get back to Screwball and Grape Crush, so <laughs> let's just stay with Old old Forest. You, you don't want a footy drink? I'm going to pass. Yeah. I think, I, I think yeah, top shelf yeah. to me, uh, I found this, this is back when, you know, we still had stores that sold DVDs. I found it on a whim, bought it like just one Sunday after uh, every Sunday. Most, most times I do like what I call the Sunday afternoon movie. And at two o'clock I sit down, I crack open a beer. Sometimes I'll do, I'll do, I'll do bourbon. And I just, I just watch something. Enjoy a movie. Yeah. And I remember the day I put Sorcerer on, and I'd never seen it. It was a raw, raw buy from me. And I was just blown away for two hours. And I loved it. And I, I've been telling you, I was like, man, you got to see this movie. You got to come over and watch it. And I'm glad this kind of fell into our laps to kind of share this with you. So, yeah, top shelf. This a great three-film run from, I think, a great director who I really can't say any of his other films are great. But these three are. That's fair. I agree <laughs> yeah. with you. Yeah. Excellent. Do you like Killer Joe? Yeah, no, that one. That one's good too. I'll give that one an okay. Yeah. It's not like these ones though. No. Yeah. So no, that's great. So let's go ahead and wrap this thing up and get to our nightcap. John Carpenter is such a thief. <laughs> you know exactly what I mean. Well, this. It's the era of the synth. I love I the synth. I, I got to tell you, though, you know, um, Tangerine Dream, when they toured recently live, they did a version of the Stranger Themes uh, theme song. Their take on it, it kicks ass. It's Better than the actual so one. So good. Yeah. Uh, they're, they did Thief, uh, mm -hmm. Risky Business, uh, Near Dark, Legend. They did a lot of film scores after this. This was their first foray into that. What a perfect segue mm -hmm. 
into our <clears throat> nightcap question because you just mentioned something that was slightly in consideration for me. Ooh. So our nightcap question this evening mm-hmm. or this afternoon yeah. is what are the best, it was supposed to be best, yeah. but what are the best films yeah. you've seen that nobody else saw? Or what are the best films that nobody saw? Same kind of category. Let's limit this to how far do we want to go? I only got two. Let's do two. Okay. I'll give you an honorable mention if you want it. Okay. But. Um, you want a nightcap here? Uh, just a touch, yeah. Okay. The Thief one is one that was pretty highly recommended to me. And that's an interesting movie. I I, it, I thought about it. Okay. Anyway, so it, it was a perfect segue. So I'll give you whichever place you want to go in your ranking of these first. I'll let you have first swing at it. I'm going to do my honorable mention first. Okay. This is a pretty recent film. I think 2014 or 15, mm-hmm. maybe 16. Directed by Joel Edgerton. Written by Joel Edgerton. Starring Joel Edgerton and Jason Bateman. It's a film called The Gift. Have you seen this? Mm-mm. Oh shit, Matt! You might have. We might have to. Oh do wait, it. yeah, I have seen that about the. Yes, no, no. He's where the, he's he terrorizes the, him and his. Oh, yeah, yes. no, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah great movie. Yeah, kind of came out of nowhere. I right. didn't see it in the theater, and I I watched it. I, I still subscribe to Netflix DVD if you can believe that. You and said he, Joel Edgerton, and I was thinking like Taylor Egerton. Yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, yes, not yeah. And I watched it one night, and I was just so blown. It's such a tight thriller, yep. and the end is so fucked up. Really. Yep. And I was just like, more people need to see this and talk about it. But yeah, that's that's always one that I've always kind of kind of held as like a kind of quiet film. Mm-hmm. But um, what's your honorable mention? I always feel like when we do this, I tend to gravitate towards horror. So I'm not going to do either of the two that I might say that I'm purposely going to challenge myself on this. Okay. And the one that I'm going to throw out mm-hmm. for that movie that you haven't seen is Lars and the Real Girl. Ooh. It's a really quaint dark little dramedy um ryan gosling before ryan gosling became who you all know him to be yeah. in that strange period post remember the titans mm-hmm. pre oh pre that's what, like pre like a, what was that crazy, apollo thing that he did like crazy he kinda, stupid love yeah yeah mm-hmm. you should see it mm-hmm. he basically falls in love with the sex doll um <laughs> and it's more about and but not <clears throat> done creepily in a weird way yeah have you seen Lars and the Real Girl? Yeah, I have. Okay, so that's going to be my honorable mention. Okay, that's good. Okay, so let's go to your one and two. My number one. No, just my number. No, no, the two, right. two. That was that was it. The okay. gift was that. So here's my top selection. It's going to freak you out, but when I saw it in the theater, I knew I had seen something special, and it was an expensive two hundred million dollar movie. It totally bombed. No one liked it. The critics hated it. But I'm like, that's not a bad movie, and it's the Wachowski brothers' Speed Racer. This is a film starring Emile Hirsch, John Goodman, Susan Sarandon, Christina Ricci, Matthew Fox. And if you like the cartoon, Japanese anime, the film's like watching a cartoon. And I can't think of films that it's a visual treat for the eyes. But Matt, what it's at the core, and I know this is why I like it, it's a film about family Mm -hmm. and family values and uh, about kind of like finding your place. It has a rocky element to it in an extent with races and visually, I, I've never seen a film cut the way that it is. Each sequence kind of fades into it. So if I'm like panning with my face uh, and then I go this way and the scene's ending this way, the next scene starts after pans after my face. It like cut it like I can't describe it. Okay. 
it's incredible. And no, no one saw it when it came out. And everyone I show it to is just like, well, that was, that was actually not, not bad. And it's, it's a fun ride and it's just kind of disappearing at this point. It was still the Wachowski brothers. It was before the Wachowski starship at that point. I thought for sure you were going to go with Zodiac. Yeah. That's another good one too. Yeah. But I've always felt really strongly about Speed Racer. It's a movie. It's a, it's for the family. You could show kids this, but I think, you know, adults get a lot out of it too. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to pull a bit of a, a me, you on this. <laughs> so I'll talk about the ones that I didn't choose that were close and just sort of a way to hopefully encourage people to go see these with the vast amounts of time you have. Cause you're not spending time in the theater. Can I throw a hot take at you go. after what you just said? Go. I think Zodiac is actually my favorite David Fincher film. Okay. It's a great movie. Yeah. You'll find no argument. I mean, it's not mine, yeah, but yeah. yeah, that's a great movie. It is. Yeah. So here are the ones that didn't, that I considered Ted Demi's beautiful girls. Mm. Everybody should see that film. Nobody saw it. <laughs> um, the other one that was close and I mean, real close. I don't think you've seen this film either. Okay. Tommy Lee Jones and Barry, Le Barry Pepper with uh, January Jones in the three burials of Melchiatus Estrada. Mm -mm. Yeah, I haven't seen that. You and me are going to watch that. Okay. Because I'm going to do to you what you've done to me. Okay. You're going to love it. All right. Okay. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. It's basically a, a revenge movie, but not the way you think. But despite that, those are not my winners. Okay. My winner's the 25th hour. Mm. This is a movie that in my house, it is hotly debated because this is in my top 20 ever. No one saw it mm -hmm. by a very, very recognizable director. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Spike Lee. Mm -hmm. My wife hates it. Yeah. <clears throat> I love it. Again, Barry Pepper again. Yeah. Edward Norton. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Barry Pepper's a little Claude Rainsy. <laughs> a little bit, huh? <laughs> little he really is. Um, essentially, it's the story of Edward Norton gets popped in a drug sting, and this is what he does the last day before he's got to go do 20 at the Huskow. It's a character study, and it has the best ending montage that's ever been done in film, mm. and no one saw this movie. Listen, the 25th hour. Mm. Go get it. Nice. It's so good. You've seen it. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's your number one? That's my number Can one. Can I throw another honorable mention in there? Yeah, please. Before the devil knows you're dead. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, Jesse. <laughs> Was, That's my movie. You stole that. <laughs> you let it. You let me borrow it. Isn't it good? You mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman. When when was that guy not good in a film? Yeah, I don't know. Like whether it's Almost Famous or even like Along Came Polly. Like, well, to that also, like no one saw Magnolia, and he's really good at Magnolia too. Mm -hmm. He always brought it, and he's that's a Sydney Sydney Lumet. I think that's his last film. You know. I didn't even think about looking into his filmography for three in a row. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, that might be. Listen to me here. Mm -hmm. This this might be something we might want to consider in the not too distant future. We just mentioned today two heist movies. Yeah, Thief <clears throat> and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. If we could find another one in there, yeah, that might be a really cool cast to do in the not too distant future. Definitely. Wouldn't you love to cover Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and Thief <laughs> on this? James Con. Yeah, that's a good one. And all of his conniness. <laughs> You know exactly what I mean, too. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, this has been so much fun, and we hope you seek out the films of William Friedkin and revisit French Connection, The Exorcist, and dig up Sorcerer if you can. You can still buy that Blu-ray that I that I got on Amazon. So Yeah, you'd be surprised if you just go into your microphone on your remote and say, 
search this, which you can pull up sometimes too. <laughs> and it comes up for you. Yeah. So let's set up what we got coming up next week. So being that, you know, we're all still quarantined and we did post-apocalypse and we highlighted director, like we're going to do something that other than 500 days of summer. Mm-hmm. The graduate? Maybe. Maybe. We haven't really dabbled into this genre and let's just kind of open it up. So we'll call this cask. Everyone could use a good laugh right now. Yeah. We're going to get into some hard comedy. We are. and Matt, Ensemble. What, yeah. And you're going to pick one. I'm going to pick one. And then we're going to hit it to Instagram and we're going to let Instagram pick a comedy that they want to have reviewed on the show. We're going to put them in a hat and we'll pick it on the next episode. Whatever we pick, we're going to cover. So you want to tell them what you're going to do and then I'll tell them what I'm going to do? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So in two weeks, uh, we're going to cover, again, uh, directed by Amy Heckerling, screenplay by Cameron Crowe. I think maybe the best movie to cover high school <laughs> ever. <laughs> Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, Mr. Head. I- <laughs> I've heard of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time not like quoting the film while we're talking. About it right. It's, it's, it's great. It's, and so that's the one I'm picking Cameron Crowe before he went South, huh? Yeah. We'll talk about it. That whole, how he wrote that film. Crazy. Sounds fun. Yeah. What are you picking, Matt? Uh, and this is next week's film. This is yeah a week from now. Ensemble piece, tight little thing you've heard of super high concept. Mm-hmm. Pinches on the idea of what if, mm-hmm. and that's the morning after idea, right? Mm-hmm. The hangover. Yeah. I think it's one of the most brilliant comedies that's ever been crafted. Yeah. Um, and then we'll get to the third week here after we get through these first two. But- yeah. So if you want Forgetting Sarah Marshall, uh, 40 please. year old version, this is Spinal Tap, uh, Airplane, you know, whatever you want, put it in. We'll put it in the hat. We'll pick it. We'll review it. So we're going to let everybody's vote go in the hat. And we're just going to pull one out and go with it. It's risky. I pray to God it's not Step Brothers. <laughs> Please. As you hear that, don't put Step Brothers in. Brett Reese, I'm talking to you. Don't you dare vote for that. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Much well, love, Brett. I'm just playing with you. That's going to be a lot of fun and to talk about how a comedy's crafted, much like a horror film, and they just kind of mm-hmm. go through all of that. I think The Hangover is a perfect kind of template to dive into that with. A bit of a story about the production on that adventure mm-hmm. spank too that I hope I can get into next I, week. I hope you do. Yeah. Excellent. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I gotta go do some work on my car. I don't have to transport nitroglycerin, but I do have to venture out to go get some groceries. <laughs> Might not be any more daunting than that film at this point. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Excellent, Ryan Nation. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Everybody stay safe, huh? We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. Sorcerer is property of Universal Pictures, Paramount Pictures, and Film Properties International, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Five minutes before nine, in Paris.